It's a delight to be worshiping the Lord together with you this morning. Last week, we concluded our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And this week, we move into a new uh, sermon series entitled The Portrait of the Cross. In the book of Galatians, Paul wrote uh, to the church there, informing them that when he was with them and preached Christ crucified, uh, when he preached the gospel, Christ was portrayed for them as crucified. In other words, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is a portrait, and it informs us of who God is, who we are. In fact, it answers life's big questions. What do you see when you look at the cross? This morning, we're going to be looking at a couple of those big life questions and how the cross answers them in terms of who is God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and to an extent, we're going to begin looking at who are we as people? Who are we? Why are we here? Some of those types of questions. We believe by answering that question, what do we see in the cross? What does the cross mean to us that we will answer those big life questions? We will see how the cross and how Christ's triumph over the cross answers that question, who is God? And by portraying to us God's character and proving for us Christ's identity. So let us, um, uh, as you saw on the slide uh, a little moment ago, and, and perhaps again, uh, we're sort of summarizing what this series means by saying that the portrait of the cross enables us to be able to see God's majesty, our lives, and the world's hope in the cross of Jesus Christ. So what do we see in the cross? Well, the first thing that we see is that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ portrays for us God's righteousness. Now, the book of Romans can be summarized as the righteousness of God revealed. Uh, in the first chapter, uh, Paul says in uh, the 16th and 17th verse that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For in the gospel, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed for faith unto faith. And then he goes on and he amplifies the whole topic of righteousness. In fact, from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter, uh, midway through chapter 3, what he describes is how the entire world, all of humankind, lacks righteousness. We are all unrighteous. In fact, he begins in, in chapter 1 uh, by talking about how um, through our ungodly conduct, we have all suppressed the truth of God. And he goes on to describe um, how that um, has resulted in everybody uh, lacking righteousness. The moralist, Paul says, lacks righteousness. The uh, person who is a pagan and, and an unbeliever lacks righteousness. And he goes on to say that even the descendants of Israel, even the Jewish people themselves lack righteousness. In chapter 3, he concludes that section by saying, no one is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks after God. And back in chapter 1 and verse 32, when he is describing how uh, people's conduct exhibit that they have suppressed the truth of God, he describes one of the many catalogs of sins is that people, by suppressing God's truth, through their disobedience, actually express their hatred for God. That may be shocking to some of us, but from God's perspective, that's precisely what it is. And chapter 8, he recounts how the mind of sinful man is hostile to the law of God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. In chapter 6, verse 23, he says it like this. The wages of sin is death. It is what we have earned as a result of our unrighteousness. In chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says in verses 21 through 28, of how the cross portrays for us the righteousness of God. Now, he doesn't actually use the word cross, but, but of course, the cross was an instrument of death. It was Christ shedding his blood on the cross and dying in our behalf. And that's what he speaks of in these verses. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, no but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. Now, in this passage, Paul uses the description of Jesus' death on the cross. He's speaking here of, of the righteousness of God being revealed. And he mentions that God put for Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, th that is not a very common uh, term, propitiation. But what it means is, is that Jesus has satisfied God's righteous wrath for our sin by bearing the penalty of God for that sin upon the cross. So God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, is displaying his righteousness to us. That brings up the, the whole idea of what is God like? Well, when we speak about the moral character of God, it, it's divided really into two broad classifications. Now, this is an oversimplif oversimplification, but there is on the one hand the goodness of God, and then there is also um, the holiness of God. Words like holiness and righteousness and justice. So what does the Bible mean when it describes God as being holy? Well, the word holy means to be set apart, and it refers to how God is set apart from us. He is over us. He is above us. He is majestic. 
But when it refers to God in the sense of his morality, it is a reference to the characteristics of God that within himself, he is thoroughly and completely morally pure. He is without flaw. In fact, he is so holy that scripture says that he can't even not look upon sin. He abhors sin and he demands uh, holiness from us, his moral creatures. It's revealed in the moral law of God, but being created in the image of God, uh, the law of God is implanted in our hearts. We have a conscience that bears witness to us when we uh, act in ways that God does not want us to. Well, from that, we understand what righteousness means. Righteousness literally it, 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 uh, refers to a strict adherence to the law. Now, there is no law that is above God, but in his own character, God exhibits a law of what is right and wrong. And one of the glorious things about the character of God is that he always does what is right. Now, I know that there are times where our circumstances can tempt us to think that God may not be doing right, or at least his doing right doesn't conform to our timetable when we wish he would hurry up, uh, perhaps if we're crying out to him that he would deliver us from a particular difficult or hostile situation. But being true, God will always do what is right. God will always act according to his nature. God will always do what God has said that he will do. And so that leads us to the question, well, what happens when we don't do what it is that God commands that we do? Well, that's where the whole idea of the justice of God comes in. That's the justice of God refers to how does God respond when people violate his law, his holiness. God's justice refers to giving every person their due by treating them according to the deserts of their actions. God in scripture is portrayed as one who rewards obedience and he also is one who punishes disobedience. And the primary reason for that punishment of sin is to maintain his righteousness and his justice. Now, sometimes people may ask, well, why is God such a hard nose? Why doesn't he just forgive sin and overlook it all? Why isn't he kind of like a, a benevolent grandfather who just sort of winks at our sin and lets us do what we want? It's precisely because God cannot deny himself. He is, in his character, holy, righteous, and just. And if God were not to respond to sin according to his law, he would be denying himself and he would no longer be God. God's forgiveness to us through his work on the cross, through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, is not like a presidential pardon. It, it's not like somebody having their sentence commuted. Now, sometimes people are pardoned because there has been some travesty of justice and they have not been treated fairly. 
But a lot of times, I think one of the things that frustrates us is that when people in positions of power get treated differently because they are friends with whoever is in power, and we get upset every time a president leaves office and they pardon a bunch of people, many of whom we think should not be pardoned, we get upset and we say, where's the justice in that? God can't do that. God does not, uh, there are not any travesties of justice in the way in which God orders his, his affairs. And God must deal with the violations of his law in a just and righteous manner. That is who he is. Many years ago, when I was in college, I had a history class. And the, the teacher in this history class was, was very um, vocally opposed to spirituality in general, but into Christianity and and specifics. And he was commenting at one time in one of his lectures about how it is absolutely unjust for God to send innocent people to hell. So I raised my hand. As I often did in those days, my, my zeal greatly exceeded my knowledge and I shudder many times to think of uh, ways that I wasn't the, the best witness. Uh, but on this particular day, um, I, I raised my hand and I, I said to him, I said, sir, I absolutely agree with you. It would be absolutely unjust if God were to send innocent people to hell. In fact, such a God should be repudiated and denied and nobody should follow such a God. And he was a little bit surprised, somewhat pleased by my statement. And I said, but sir, the problem is nobody is innocent. God does not send innocent people to hell. Scripture says that all of us have fallen short of the righteousness of God. Every sin is deserving of death. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And so on the cross, what we have portrayed for us is a God who is pure, who is righteous. He always does what is right, and he is just. He will always uphold his character and his moral law. Now, if that were the only aspect of God's character, that would be a bummer for us, would it not? But God is not only a God who is holy, but what we also see portrayed for us in the cross is that the cross portrays God's love. And we find them both meeting perfectly for us. God's righteousness and his love in the cross. In Romans chapter 5, we read these verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Now listen to this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if we were enemies, for, excuse me, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You know, there are times where people can portray the character of God somewhat like this. That God was in the Old Testament, a God of of wrath and a God of justice and a, a God of fire and brimstone. And in the New Testament, God is a God of love and God's love overcame God's justice and righteousness and holiness. And we now can experience his love. Well, that is a very poor portrayal of how God represents himself to us on the cross. God is both a God of righteousness and equally a God of love. And one is not to be diminished or exalted over the other because all kinds of problems erupt (laughs) in understanding who God is and how we are to live if we do so. But in the cross, and back in Romans chapter 3, we read that God is both just and the justifier of those sinful people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how could a just God then forgive us of our sins? Doesn't that penalty have to be paid? Or that's where the love of Christ comes through. While we were yet sinners, while we were God's enemies, Scripture says, Christ died for us so that we might experience the love and the forgiveness of God. And so what God did on the cross was maintain both his righteousness and his love. His righteousness was upheld in that a payment for sin had to be made. And Jesus bore the penalty of death for our sin, that by believing in him, we would be forgiven and receive the full forgiveness and love of God. That is the beauty of the cross. That is how the majesty of God is shown for us. Now, there are many people who at this point have an objection against Christianity because they think um, that a father offering his son who was innocent as a sacrifice for the sins of an unjust people is a monster of a God. And they object that they could not follow such a God. Well, again, we have to look at the whole picture of what scripture provides for us. In scripture, Jesus said that he lays down his life willingly. Nobody took it up from him. It was a voluntary sacrifice on the part of Jesus for us. You know, like in in some of the pagan religions, you you have the portrayal of the volcanoes getting ready to erupt and to avoid the, the anger of this arbitrary God. They run into the village, they find a virgin, and they toss her in the mouth of the volcano and hope that that satisfies the anger of the capricious God. That is nothing like what scripture portrays Jesus as doing. He willingly laid down his life and took it back up again for us. And the other aspect 
that is important for us to remember when we hear that very old, and it's, it's getting tired, uh, objection to Christianity that God is some kind of monster. Is that in the cross, Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, as very God himself, took upon our sins so that God paid the penalty himself for our transgression. And it is not some kind of uh, monstrous God who puts his son up for us. The son willingly, the son as God himself, paid the penalty for our sins. Many years ago, a good friend of mine was dating a gal that, that he was very enamored with. And so he went to the jeweler in our college town because he wanted to buy her a, a cross necklace. And so he went in and he started talking to the jeweler about what he wanted. And so the jeweler starts pulling out the pads of the different crosses. And he says to my, my friend, he says, do you want the man with the, do you want the cross with a little man on it or without? And, and my buddy said, little man, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And no, I don't want a crucifix because Jesus is not on the cross. He's not in the grave, but he's risen from the dead. And that leads to our next point. For the cross not only portrays for us who God is, but it proves for us the identity of Jesus. For you see, Christ's triumph over the cross portrays Jesus as God's son. Now, you might remember that when Jesus was in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days and nights, that the devil came and tempted Jesus. And probably the climax of those temptations was that, G, uh, that the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, to the, to the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And of course, Jesus rebuffed him with scripture. Um, and Satan was thwarted and trying to tempt Jesus. But we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, that the devil left him until a more opportune time. And another one of those opportune times came when Jesus was on the cross. And in Matthew chapter 27, verse 40, there are those that are around the cross that are deriding Jesus Christ. And they say to him, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. You see, the very heart of the temptations of Satan towards Jesus was that Jesus would demonstrate and prove that he was the Son of God by some way other than going to the cross. The cross does not portray that Jesus in some way earned the disapproval of the Father, but rather through his resurrection from the dead, by God raising him from the dead, Scripture tells us that Jesus proves that he is the Son of God. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, we read of how uh, beforehand, that is in the Old Testament, the prophets had promised uh, in the Holy Scriptures that Jesus, the servant of God, would come. And concerning his son, 
who, was a, who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, Jesus did not prove that he was the son of God by coming down from the cross or avoiding the cross, but God declared, this is my son by raising him again from the dead so that we have proof of the identity of Jesus and the work that he came to perform, God attests to its validity by rising him from the dead and saying, I accept the sacrifice of my son for your sin. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ proves his triumph over the cross, proves that he is the son of God. But also we see that Christ's triumph over the cross portrays Jesus is both Lord and Christ. You might remember in uh, the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, that is after Jesus had ascended into heaven, that the Spirit of God came down upon the disciples as they were assembled together. And they began speaking in other tongues so that people could understand the good news in their own language. And people were mocking them. They were saying that they were drunk by this carrying on. And Peter stands up to speak to them. And he says, oh, no, no, uh, th these uh, people are not drunk as you once, uh, as you believe. But you might remember that in Psalm 16, this is Dwight's paraphrase, that in Psalm 16, David said that God would not let his Holy One to see decay. And, he, and, and Peter declared that David's tomb was still among them. David was still in the grave, and he was obviously not referring to himself, but his descendant, his son, whom God would not let see decay. And he picks up, we pick up in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now listen to this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. So when God raised the Son from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and as a testament of the fact that God accepted the sacrifice of Christ for the sins of God's people, he poured out the Spirit upon all of those that were there as a demonstration that God had accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. So you see, by shedding his blood on the cross, Jesus paid for, he covered our sin. God's righteous wrath was satisfied. That's what propitiation by his blood meant. But also his righteousness was credited to us. If these windows were stained glass and you were on the outside and you looked in to say a red pane, everything in here would appear to be red. And 
that is uh, similar to what happens with the righteousness of Christ. When God views us through the righteousness of Jesus, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the righteousness of Christ credited to us. And the proof that that occurred and the proof that Jesus is that Christ, that promised Messiah, and the Lord that God had promised us, God raised him from the dead and poured out his spirit upon the church. The cross proves for us who Jesus is and the work that he has performed in obedience to God for our salvation. Now, you might be wondering, okay, you mentioned God the Father. You mentioned God the Son. What does the cross prove about God the Holy Spirit? Well, we'll look at that in a few weeks. Uh, Today, we have taken a look at the portrait of the cross. In future weeks, we're going to look at the purpose of the cross. We're going to look at the power of the cross and the peace of the cross. And we are going to see how the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ answers for us humanity's big questions. And so I would like to leave you with a way that you could be praying about the truths that we have learned this morning by taking a look at the portrait of the cross. How you can pray for yourself, the Westtown community, and for our mission in this community, as we've been talking about in prior weeks. This week, I urge you to ask the Lord to show you and the people in your life spheres who he is, who we are, and to rest more fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.